Hey, thanks for joining me for episode 35 of the Cold Char Podcast. Oh, go upstairs. Go get mom. Go. Hey, go. No. Go. Doesn't listen worth a hoot. We're having a little visit from my dog. I guess I didn't close the door to upstairs. But anyway, thanks for joining me for this episode. I have what I think is a really interesting conversation lined up with certainly a very interesting individual. And I had shared with him as we took a break about halfway through this episode that I never know what I'm going to get out of the guests that I ask to be on the show, especially the ones that I don't know on a very personal level. And I always kind of have to just cross my fingers that there's going to be some type of lesson involved in it since so much of our um, show you know, is centered around good life lessons and, and things like that. And I wasn't sure what to expect. And then after the conversation got going, I was just pleasantly surprised, as I always am. Every single time I'm proven proven wrong by my guests that they always have something insightful and important to share with the listeners about how they approach life and what has led them to their success and things like that. And so I just thank Joe so much for the conversation and the wisdom that he was willing to share. Before we get to the conversation, I just want to remind you guys once again If you have not yet left a rating and a review on iTunes, if you could please go do so. There is a lot of time that goes into this project, not just for me personally, um, but from the guests that are willing to take time out of their day and away from their families to speak to me and share things with you guys. So if it's something that you support and and benefit from and are on board with, then please do go to iTunes and, and leave a rating and review. It would be so much appreciated. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Joe Beyer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Cold Shower Podcast. My guest today is Joe Beyer, and he is an idea agitator. And what I'm excited about with this episode is that we are going to learn what that is as we go along. He's certainly been involved in a lot of different stuff, uh, whether that's writing or partnered with people in the film industry, but that's pretty much the extent of what I know about him. And so I think that we're going to kind of all learn a little bit together as he shares uh, some stories or just insight um, and kind of how he lives his life too. Very interesting guy and I'm looking forward to uh, getting the chance to have a conversation with him. So Joe, welcome. Thanks for being here and uh, you can intro yourself however you feel comfortable. Yeah, no, thank you so much and uh, I really appreciate us rescheduling today. So uh, thank you again. (laughs) Yeah, no, the conversation is going to be well worth it. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we've we've chatted just a tiny bit. We we found out that we had some mutual friends and then we met at uh, Boardman Review launch party, which was one of my favorites of the year. We were just talking about that. And um, yeah, so I'm new to Traverse City, new to northern Michigan. I've been here since April um, of 2018. So just about eight months now. And um, I'm not totally unfamiliar with Michigan. I grew up in Holland, uh, downstate in West Michigan. Um, lived there my whole life, went to school in Indiana in the Midwest, came back home to raise money to go somewhere. I wasn't quite sure where, um, but I always had a deep, deep uh, fascination and interest with the movie and film industry, and so decided that uh, I would head west, which I had never conceived of when I was you know, a younger kid. 
um, and went out there and accidentally fell in love with it. So I was there for about 22 years in Los Angeles and um, still have a lot of connections there and just got back actually a couple days ago from a nice little visit. Um, but Trevor City is my home now. So happy to talk to you today. Yeah, man. Thanks again for being here. Um, I keep meeting people that have been or lived in LA and I've never even visited there. It's like, a, it seems I've said to Nick and Chris loud, um, that to me, it almost seems like another planet. And so I feel like I have to get out there <laughs> at some point. Um, but well, that's true. It is true, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so actually my brother played basketball at Hope College. So okay. I've been to Holland quite a few times too. Um, love that little town. Um, what did you go to school for? Did you go to school because that was the point where you wanted to get into the film industry? So you made that decision right away or how did that look? No, I didn't. I, you know, nothing that has ever happened in my life was quick or definitive. I don't think, um, especially when it comes to career moves. But when I was in high school, I was blessed, uh, to go to a school that really valued a lot of the performing arts, music, um, theater in particular, and then forensics, you know, this, uh, classic thing that a lot of us have done here in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And so in high school, I went to Holland high school, same high school my father went to, and, um, I got involved in the theater department and just really loved it. I loved everything about it. I, I did a little bit of everything, set design, costume design, uh, music, lighting, you know, they sort of taught you everything. And, um, we had an extraordinary teacher who really inspired an enormous, you know, group of people to get involved, parents, you know, students. And we were very successful, um, as you can be in high school theater. <laughs> so we won the uh, state championship a couple times. And I think now my high school holds the record for the most state championships in theater. So, you know, go Dutchman. And um, he was just a really um, generous person who got a lot of us involved in something that we never expected to be involved in, which was theater. And from theater, I, you know, had experiences that I thought were, you know, sort of incredible. And it was mainly about collaborating with people. You know, I just love the team aspect of it. Um, you know, big groups of people coming together, everybody sharing a vision, um, you know, and then the audience was the last part of that vision. So um, performing and, and having that feedback loop between the audience and, and the work was something that I was kind of fascinated with. And so it came time to think about where I would go to college. And um, I think I watched a ton of ER and I was uh, thinking about becoming a doctor, which would have been a horrible choice for me. <laughs> You're going to become George Clooney. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was definitely the dream. Are you right. kidding me? So um, and eventually I thought, OK, I'll go to Michigan State and I'll either study theater or, you know, become a doctor. That was the, my naive 17 year old mind. And um, so I actually got into MSU and I was only a few weeks away from starting, uh, you know, my undergraduate career and a guy that I was doing some theater with at Hope College. Hope mm -hmm. has a, a summer repertory theater that's very um, well known. And uh, his name was Michael McCauley, a uh, very great actor, um, professional actor. And we were talking and he said, well, what do you really want to do? And I said, well, I really, you know, I feel quite serious about this, you know, theater career. Um, to give you some sense of how, you know, young I was, the other thing that I thought was maybe I'd become a professional magician, uh, okay. which was also something <laughs> that I dabbled with in high school. And uh, so it was either, you know, professional magician, doctor or actor. Um, those were the choices I was tossing around. So I was going to go to MSU and he said, well, you should take a look at this really 
interesting little theater program in Southern Indiana. And I had never been down that way. And he said, I really think you should go and visit them. And I said, oh my God, you know, I'm two weeks away from starting at MSU. And he said, let me make a call. So he knew the director of that program, a guy named John David Lutz. And he called for me and they said, well, you know, we are very, very late in the season, obviously, but if you would drive down in the next couple of days, we would, we would take a look at your audition and your application. So I rented the first car I've ever rented in my life. And I drove down in the middle of the night to Southern Indiana and I did my little audition and they, you know, were feigning that they were impressed and, uh, they offered me a tiny scholarship So I came home and told my parents I was going to switch from Michigan State to the University of Evansville, which no one had ever heard of, and go study theater. And I think, you know, both my parents were a tad bit concerned about that. But as you are when you're 18, it's like the first time that you're flexing your independent muscles. So I sort of made that my, that was my big decision was Mm -hmm. I was going to switch and go down there. So I did, and it changed my life in unbelievable ways. I'm sure I would have had a great experience at MSU, but I also would never have had the small, you know, liberal arts education that I got. I think my graduating class at Evansville was about 800, 900 people. So a big difference from MSU. And the friendships that I made at that program and the things that I learned have stayed with me for the rest of my life, even though I never did theater again after undergraduate. Um, But it was a great program. And you know, one of the things I take away from it now, looking back, you know, at theater in in general is I have a lot of friends from that program. Many of them are hugely successful. Um, One of the graduates, Rami Malek, just won a Golden Globe for uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. And, uh, you know, that was huge. I mean, you know, this was a kid who went through the same program that I did. Um, A classmate of mine, Jack McBrayer, ended up doing a ton of television. He was on 30 Rock for many, many years. Now he's in, you know, practically every other Pixar animated movie. And um, so we had these these people that came out of the program that were very successful and many others I can name. But those are two that probably people might recognize. Um, And so for a lot of us, we didn't end up going into theater or performance as a career. That's what I studied. But I was I was starting to get more interested in writing and wanting to be behind the scenes a little bit. Um, Acting is something that you have to wait for the opportunity to be able to do it. Someone has to give you a role or give you an opportunity. And and so there's a lot of waiting and um, a lot of ambivalence about how do I move forward, you know, and mm-hmm. what I want to do. And I saw writing and directing as much more um, on demand. You know, if I wanted to do something, I could make it happen. Um, certainly if I wanted to write, I could write anytime I wanted. I could you know, I didn't have to ask anybody's permission. So I started thinking about getting out of performance and moving behind the scenes. And that was a major, major turning stone in my, in my thinking and changed the course of my, my life. And when I look back at it now, I wonder, well, was, was it a waste of time to study theater and, you know, spend all this energy trying to think about a career in theater, which is a very, you know, it's a very small number of people that can make a career out of live theater. Um, but in retrospect, what's what's fascinating is all the people that went through that program and other programs, you know, when people say um, to, you know, when parents say to a teacher, you know, I'm really concerned my child wants to study theater 
you know, I don't think that that's a viable career. You know, they're just worried. They're just parents. They love their kids. They want them to be successful. And what I tell people now is, you know, theater won't be, it's very unlikely that theater would be something that your, your kid would end up doing professionally, but the, the lessons and the experiences that they take out of that will make them successful in whatever they do. Mm -hmm. And there are hundreds and hundreds of examples of people that I knew and I worked with and I studied with who never went into theater, but continue to use a lot of what they learned in whatever they're doing now. And some of them, you know, went wildly in different directions. Um, but theater gives you confidence. It teaches you how to collaborate. Um, it gives you a sense of the world as a broader place, you know, much bigger than where you are, especially a kid from the Midwest who had a really limited idea of what the world was. Um, and also I think, you know, performance and storytelling is now kind of the professional language of the 21st century. You know, people, all these companies employ people that have the word storyteller in their job title. You know, if you're selling something or you provide a service, being able to tell the story of how you do that or why you do it is a big part of marketing now. And, and so a lot of people that I went to school with, you know, never went into this as a career and neither did I, but it taught me a great deal. So I, I have many, many, you know, happy memories of what this gave to me in my life and never regret that I kind of chased it for a little while, even though I didn't end up doing it professionally. Yeah. So, yeah. So as far as the storytelling aspect, I think that's something that, um, from when you went up and spoke at the Boardman Review event, that was pretty apparent, um, that you have, you know, the ability to tell a story. Is that a, I think to tell a story, you also have to have kind of a unique perspective on, on the world a little bit so that you mm -hmm. can create a, a viable story. Are you conscious of the view that you have on the world or is it just because of how you were raised or your experiences that that's how you see things? Or do, are you deciding each day to see things the way that you do? No, it's a great question. I wish, I wish I had more insight. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, writers especially are always told, you know, write what you know as, as a starting point, you know, don't, don't try to imagine another person's perspective, dig deeply into your own perspective and see what that generates. And I do agree with that. I think that's a great place to start, especially when you're a young person. Um, in terms of a point of view, I think the older I get, the more malleable my point of view is, the more ambivalent it is. You Good. know, I, I tend to get broader, not more focused. And um, actually a very big lesson for that came to me from working for the Sundance Film Festival, which I was lucky enough to work for later in my career. And there was a guy there that ran the film festival. He was the director and I was his personal assistant. And so I was in the room, you know, to use the Hamilton analogy when they were making these decisions. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting was that when I came to Sundance, I thought, well, Sundance, you know, they represent the expertise to know what is a good film and what is a bad film. And they use that expertise to curate, you know, these wonderful uh, titles and bring them to the world. In reality, when I was there, what I learned from this, this programmer and director and many other people on staff was that actually what they were training themselves to do was to have the broadest point of view. And so instead of saying, oh, I understand what a good movie is, they, they trained themselves to be open to the widest perspective of, of storytelling techniques, of themes, of points of view. And so in reality, they didn't know what a good movie or a bad movie was. 
they were opening themselves up to the whole range of what people were doing in film. And that's what was actually exciting about it was people that were open to everything and sharing a little bit of everything. So they would program the festival and they would look at it as a program, you know, as a 10 day event and what it would represent in the world of film and cinema. And they didn't look at it as individual films. And this guy that I've mentioned several times, uh, his name was Jeff Gilmore. He was the director of the festival. He left while I was at Sundance. And then um, another of the staff members, a great guy, uh, one of my mentors, John Cooper, he took over. And the theme was don't don't argue against films. You know, when you come into the room, if you've seen a film and you and you don't think it's worthy, he was very uninterested in your perspective on that. But if you were excited about something, if you really were stimulated and you believed in something, then he was very interested. And so that was a kind of flip, you know, because I think when you go to the movie business, you think some people have the answers and some people don't. And you're always constantly trying to emulate what's successful. And this group of people at Sundance really taught me to be open to the widest variety of things and not to have any preconceptions about what makes a great film or, or what a great film looks like or feels like. And that was a huge lesson to me. You know, as a kid from the Midwest, there were lots of types of films and, and a lot of different types of cinema that I had never seen. And some of it was shocking. You know, some of it was, was really hard, you know, for me, the avant-garde, some of the LGBTQ, you know, content was not something I was, you know, comfortable with watching um, when I first came to LA. And so over the course of all these years, you know, suddenly my worldview just got blown out of the water. And now I would say that that's the best part of what happened to me, you know, by going to a metropolitan area. I think that would have happened anywhere. I could have moved to Chicago and I probably would have had a similar experience. It wasn't LA or New York or Chicago or another big city that's specific. It's just when you grow up in a small town, which I did, you know, Holland's not a small town anymore. It used to be mm -hmm. a very small town. And um, so that was where I grew up. And my sense of the world was based on what I could see and experience in Holland. And when I look back, it was actually a lot more diverse than I remember it being. You know, I look at pictures of my elementary school and my junior high and high school, and I'm always shocked a little bit, you know, to see how many um, students from different ethnic backgrounds were actually a part of my school. But I think small towns are small, you know, and you don't, and I didn't travel. My family didn't travel overseas or do anything like that. We were, you know, middle-class blue collar people. And um, so once you just start seeing that, it's like the world just gets so big and it, it is something that I think everyone should have the chance to, everyone would benefit from the chance to have their worldview widened, even if it just makes you believe the things that you believed mm -hmm. before more strongly. Um, but for a lot of us, I think what it does is suddenly make you curious about a lot more than you were before. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's kind of part of why I started some of this stuff too, is I came from a very small town, much smaller than Holland. Holland would have been uh, where we would go to do like Christmas shopping. Okay. Um, and so I graduated with under a hundred people from my high school. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure the exact population, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a very conservative area. Um, and I still hold some of those, those roots and those values that I, you know, I've gotten. And so I'm trying to find my way too on, on some of my views, but you hear it all the time, especially from, uh, I think smaller conservative communities where, 
I'm not trying to get this conversation steered a, a political direction, but where it's like, oh, if you go to college, you just turn liberal. Yeah. And most colleges are very liberal. There's most professors, I think you would say are probably liberal, but at the same time, you're simply just being exposed to different things. Yeah. And that's a big part of it. So when people come back from college or from moving to a big city, it's just exposure to different people and, and yeah. interacting with different people. I don't know if, if that's kind of what you were getting at too, or if you have, Oh, you absolutely. Agree with I mean, no one told me what to believe. It was just by meeting other people and, and having the ability to reflect on what other people had gone through, what other parts of the world thought, you know, it was just clear to me that there wasn't one point of view, that there were many, many, many points of view. Um, I kind of look back to honestly, you know, the first time I voted was in, Oh boy, I'm trying to think now. Probably 1994, I'm guessing, was mm. maybe Clinton. And so I voted. But but the reason I'm bringing this up is actually I preferred and I really enjoyed that first part of my life in between high school and becoming a young adult where I had no political point of view. You know, politics was was something that I was aware of, but I didn't I didn't feel anything deeply about it. In, in other words, I also didn't think that other people were bad because of their point of view. I didn't demonize anyone else. I, I didn't, I didn't feel as if there was a divide in the country, you know, mm -hmm. um, and it was just because I wasn't a part of society yet. I wasn't paying taxes, yeah. <laughs> you know, I wasn't voting. I wasn't seeing what, what the consequences were of politics and, and legislation and things like that. But it, there was a wonderful, beautiful time for a few years where things were just about following your curiosity and you know that's what college is in my opinion mm -hmm. you know i don't know what it would be like now for kids with the internet to you know like because they have the ability to follow whatever interests them you know on their phone yeah much earlier i had to go to a school and you know make all this effort to be a part of this institution and then choose these classes that would interest me but in in a way, all I was doing was following my own curiosity, you know? Yeah. And now I feel like what a gift it is for, for anyone of any age to be able to just tap, you know, on their computer a few clicks and, and learn. You can learn anything. You can learn absolutely everything about anything. You can stimulate your own point of view about something. Um, you know, it's that rabbit hole of your own mind. You know, where does it go? What is it interested in? And um, so that was, for me, the best part of college was just you know, the ability to, of course, you know, someone else was paying for it. So it wasn't like right. I had to have a job. <laughs> Eventually I did, but, um, you know, I miss, I miss that. I think that's the great gift of education. I certainly, if I could snap my fingers and give every child in the world, the ability just to, to at that particular point in your life, when you're a young adult, have the freedom, you know, to pursue your own interests. I think, most people would end up doing something that they were very passionate about. And if they, even if they didn't find it right away, the process of exploring these things would, you know, make them a better person. Mm -hmm. um, not that they were a bad person to begin with, but it would make them a richer, you know, more rounded three-dimensional person because they would just have that freedom. So, yeah. 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 That's, that's really true. And not everybody gets that opportunity. You're exactly right. And so yeah. that's how our views are going to either stay the same or if we have the opportunity to interact with other people, then maybe they'll evolve and we'll give other things a chance too. But not everybody gets that chance or maybe didn't take it. So it seemed like you had a little bit of both. Like you 
had the chance yeah. to go to college, but you also were deciding to maybe make some uncomfortable decisions. Cause I think state might've been the safe choice <laughs> in that sense, but I you, don't know. You don't know. Yeah. It's hard to look back. I mean, it's funny cause everybody up here, you know, there's so many Spartan fans. It's like right. ridiculous. And I kind of feel left out. I feel yeah. a little bit of a connection with them because I almost went there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, yeah. uh, you know, accepted into the school. And yeah. so I could have been a Spartan, but, um, yeah, who knows? You know, it it probably would have led me to something different, but um, how how can we ever look back? You mm-hmm. know, who who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. But so after your time in college, then that was when you decided to move to the West Coast, or how did that look? Yeah, well, you know, the honest to God truth was that I had studied to be an actor. I had thrown all my passion and work into that. I think I was pretty good at it. I mean, you know, I had a fair degree of success, but I became frustrated with this idea of not being able to create my own things. Um, And then my dear friend, Rob King, who I went to college with, he was in my class, dear friend today, he got into NYU's grad school program and we had both auditioned for it. And as college friends, you know, we had thought, oh, this would be great if we both got into NYU and, you know, NYU was the the ultimate, you know, acting program. And so Rob got in and I didn't. And so that created a huge, like, you know, uh, chip on my shoulder a little bit, not against him, but I was like, oh, okay, New York. I was like, you don't want me? I'll go as far away as possible. Right. I'll go to I'll go to Los Angeles, California, you know? Yeah. And that's really how I decided. I thought, oh, I've been rejected by New York City. I mean, it's, this is the absurdity of how your mind works when you're 21. Yep. But so a friend of mine, also from this university, uh, had just moved to Los Angeles, which at this time, this was circa 95, 96. And LA's reputation was awful. You know, it was just, a, you know, totally one dimensional plastic culture. Um, you know, Hollywood was not admired for, you know, the complexity of what it produced, but the simplicity of it, um, the copycat syndrome, the sequels, you know, it was just not if you thought of yourself as a as a legitimate artist, Los Angeles was, you know, just about the worst mm-hmm. place that you could go. That's interesting. Um, at this time, you know, it was really like people just really you know, disliked LA culture. And, um, so this friend of mine, his name was David Begg and, um, he had moved to Los Angeles and, and called me one day and he said, you know, uh, I just thought I'd tell you, you know, this is a really interesting place. You know, it's, it's a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be. So David had been an older mentor of mine in college. He was a writer. Um, he was a great actor. He directed, you know, he was just this all around cool guy. And so I thought, well, if this guy thinks L.A. is interesting, you know, then maybe there's something to it. And I had visited L.A. once when I was eight or nine years old with my uh, father and my two sisters. And we had done Disneyland and those types of things. But, you know, I had no memory of the Mm -hmm. city. And so I moved back here to Michigan and uh, my mom let me stay, you know, for free in the house like a lot of parents do. And I waited tables uh, in the summer of 95 and took every shift that I could. And every single night I would come home and I would count my cash tips. And I had this huge bankroll in my cowboy boot. And I was like, when I get to 5,000 bucks, I'll move. Yeah. And so every night was like, 
the ritual of like, how close am I to getting, you know, no offense, mom, but you know, I wanted to get out of the house. I was 21, you know, I wanted to start my life. And so, but she gave me that ability, um, sold me a car for $5, the legal minimum that she could sell it to me for. Yep. And, um, once I had that 5,000 in my boot, um, I just found a guy to drive across the country with me. And I had a dog named Duke, a little beagle basset hound. And, the three of us, you know, headed, headed west. And it was like the most exciting trip of my entire life. You know, I'll never forget traveling through Kansas and the snow was disappearing. It was spring. Um, it was March when I left and the snow disappeared somewhere around Kansas in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the trip was the most exotic places I had ever seen. I'd never seen the American West. I'd never seen the desert. Um, certainly hadn't seen mountains. You know, if you're from the Midwest, those are kind of foreign. Right. And um, and by the time I landed in, in L.A., I actually had a very uh, decent little short-term gig. And so I was able to start working right away. And, um, and then I fell in love with it, you know. And I never expected to love it out there. You know, I actually expected the opposite. I thought, I'll go here, do this little stint, you know, hate it and then come home or go to New York or Mm -hmm. something else. But I ended up really legitimately falling in love with not only the place, which Los Angeles is a huge city. It's like six cities combined. Mm -hmm. Many more than that, honestly. Um, But California is, you know, like a different planet. You know, you can head in every direction and have these adventures in the most incredible natural landscapes you've ever seen. And so that became kind of my addiction was L.A. was sort of the center. But then, you know, I tried to explore as much of the American West as I could. And it was a great place to do that from. And many, many of my friends, um, once I had landed there and a few other people landed there, there there was a movement. And people from this university, uh, University of Evansville, they started coming out to L.A. in droves. And so after a few years that I was there, there was this huge community of my college friends, like 20, 30 of us, um, who all were living and working there. And then we were doing creative things together in our free time on the weekends, you know, kind of fueling each other. And by that point, I had committed to writing. That was that was like clear to me that I was never going to act again. I didn't want to act again. I wanted to be behind the scenes. And several of my friends had also sort of changed and, and you know, become interested in writing and directing. And so we did things together constantly. And a lot of those people are incredibly successful right now, you know, in writing and directing. Um, and But it started there. You know, we were all a posse that, you know, worked together. I think that's kind of common. You know, if you're lucky enough to make like lifelong friends in college, you tend to stay active in stimulating each other over time. And, you know, I look back at that now and it's like a dream, you know, it was like the most creative time of my life. Um, the most interesting time maybe, (laughs) but, um, you know, and, and now when I left LA last year, you know, there were only a handful of us that had stayed behind. Um, a bunch of those friends ended up moving to Nashville. Mm -hmm. Um, then the pattern became a lot of people would move to New York, spend part of the year in New York and come back. And so, you know, there was this little moment in time when a lot of us were there together. And I look back at it as something pretty special. Yeah. So you had, you know, common interests with all those people, but you were, like you said, feeling each other. Yeah. And, and did they, like, at the time, did it feel 
um, like sad in the sense that you were like letting go of the initial dream or was it something where once writing, you saw writing in front of you where you were like, this might be my chance to have more of a control over my future or, or shape things how I want them shaped. Strangely, you know, I had committed this uh, unbelievable passion to acting and also to magic, which I mentioned mm -hmm. in high school. You know, I was, I was serious about it. You know, I was like really serious about it. Um, but I never missed it. Once I made that change, I never missed it. And maybe because I had so many friends that were still actors and very good ones. I mean, like, you know, some of the best actors I've ever met. And so I, I was still a part of that world by being friends with them. And I also saw the real world struggles, you know, I mean, at one point, I think the house that I lived in, you know, we had eight of us in this house that was a three bedroom house. And we were all trying to make our dreams come true. You know, that's as simple as you can put it. We were all in LA trying to pursue what what really drove us. But, you know, the actors had the worst part of it. And, you know, it's it's one thing when you're in college and you're auditioning for a college show once every semester or maybe, you know, a little bit more than that, but not often. It's another thing when every single day, you know, you're out auditioning for, you know, the tiniest little roles or little walk-on parts or the worst thing that I saw my actor friends go through was uh, auditioning for commercials, which pay extremely well, but are incredibly humiliating. Uh -huh. <laughs> so this guy, David Vegg, you know, he was, he's uh, had a huge career as an actor, but he would tell me about these commercial auditions, you know, constantly. And it's like the typecasting was so bad that, you know, you'd walk into a room and there'd be like 30 guys that look just like you and they're all dressed like a lumberjack and you realize, oh my God, they could just, you know, flip a coin and pick any right. one of these guys. But your whole rent depended on getting that job, mm -hmm. you know? So when I look back at the, what the actors went through, you know, I have such a respect for the, the, the ability to maintain optimism as an actor is probably more important than any other skill. And the tenacity, the patience, you know, and, and it was hard. I saw people have, you know, emotional um, crises where they were melting down at certain points in their life because, you know, it's just it's feast or famine, boom or bust. And, you know, very few actors ever get to a point where their career is so dependable that they're not worried about where the next job is coming from. Now, you could say that about a lot of people, but actors in particular, you know, it's it's a game and a process of constant rejection. If I was writing something, for instance, I could write it, I could pass it around to my friends, I would get a little bit of input, I would rewrite it, because writing is just rewriting, you know, most more than anything else. And so I could constantly improve what I was working on and feel more and more satisfied with it. But an actor walks into a room, they get one shot, you know, it could be a bad day for them, a bad day for the casting director. There are so many different circumstances that have nothing to do with their talent that affect how they're going to feel when they leave that room. Um, so when I was watching that, I can honestly say that I felt relieved that I hadn't gone down that road. Um, yeah. yeah. So, but I never missed it. I never missed it. I still don't miss it. Right. I love watching. I saw Fun Home last night at uh, Old Town Playhouse. Okay. And I was like in awe of like, so, you know, there's so, so many great performances, but I watch it now and it's as if I never did it. I don't know how they do it. You know, I don't know how actors get up and, and, you know, nail it like that. Um, it seems like something that I never did. Right. Yeah. You're not sure how to look better, <laughs> yeah. like what it was actually like. No, what I don't the reality remember. was like, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. so after that, where did you take 
your writing? Where did that lead you? Yeah. So, you know, writing for me was mainly about screenplays. You know, I wanted to be a film screenwriter. That was my ultimate goal. And so when you're doing that, what you do is you just write, you write as much as possible. Um, you try to develop ideas. Um, many of the friends that I mentioned were also trying to write. And so a great way to keep your stamina up and keep you feeling good is to collaborate. And so I collaborated with a number of people and, you know, co-wrote scripts and, um, and so the process was much like anybody would expect, you know, you write something, you feel like it might be ready and then you would do this dance of trying to get it to an influential person or someone that could do something with it or somebody that just might say, Oh, wow, you know, you've got some talent. Let me shepherd you into an opportunity. So believe it or not, the guy that I ended up working for, so I, I started in Los Angeles and I was doing film publicity, which was a great job. I probably learned more from that experience than almost anything else I did in LA, but it was just a job that I got. It ended up being hugely influential on my career because the PR agency that I worked for specialized in independent films before they even called them. I think at that time they honestly called them art house movies. That's mm. like the word independent film or the words independent film did not mean anything to anybody. But I had walked into this office. I needed a job and got this job assisting uh, a publicist who ended up being one of the most influential publicists in the business. And so I saw the whole process of how a movie was released into the marketplace how you work within the media infrastructure to, you know, the attention management problem, you know, I mean, any, and this was before Netflix and, and all of these, you know, a la carte services. So yeah. it was an amazing and interesting time. And one of the first movies that we worked on there was um, LA Confidential. And that year was also the year of Goodwill Hunting or the previous year had been Goodwill Hunting and then a movie called Shine, and then um, Sling Blade, and all of a sudden, overnight, there was this cottage industry called independent film. Can you explain to hot. people like what what an independent film is? I think we've all heard about it, but what would be the definition of an independent film as opposed to? Yeah, I mean, it's a lifelong question because okay. you know, in my whole career, everybody wants you know the the sharp definition is probably not one. When I started, what they would consider an independent film was any film that was produced outside of the big studio system, and that was a lot of you know product. That was a lot of content. Um, as I worked for Sundance and other places, I noticed that the the culture and the industry started to quantify uh, independent films by their budget. So it would be, you know, anything less than two million would would short shortly be considered an, an independent film. Well, then independent films became hotter and more desirable than the mainstream films, probably because they offered actors and directors and artists a, a better chance to display their talent, to be honest. I mean, that's just really what it boiled down to was a lot of talent was being discovered and you know i mean look at uh, ben affleck and matt damon you know coming yeah. out of I mean, you know look what they've done now so right. a lot of those actors and some of the most talented people in the business sort of got their start through these types of projects and so when i was in the publicity business after the second year with this agency my boss sat us all down in a conference room and he said, you know, uh, everybody, you know, we're going to Sundance this year. You know, you've, you've worked really hard and we want to bring you to Sundance. So that was not a gift. I was going to Sundance to work, but I just about fell off my chair. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had gone to the Blockbuster video, you know, in Holland, Michigan and only 
checked out VHS copies of movies that had the Sundance logo on them because right. that was what was most interesting to me. And, and then paid all the overdue fines because I would watch them over and over and over again. Same thing in college. In college, Reservoir Dogs came out and it was like mind blowing. You know, who is this guy and what is this kind of movie? I've never seen anything like this before. So the idea of going to the Mecca you know, the, the mythical Mecca of independent film, you know, the Sundance Film Festival, you know, that it, I literally, my head was going to pop off. I was so excited. And, um, and I, then I was not disappointed, you know. So I went in 97 to my very first Sundance Film Festival. I was working as a junior publicist for the Pogachevsky company. My boss had all these great movies that we were re releasing. So a publicist, when they go to a film festival, is there mainly to help the film get attention with the media, to mm -hmm. make sure that you know the, the talent is interviewed, that stories are run. It's the hype machine. You know, when, when they talked in the early days about the buzz of Sundance, the publicists were creating this buzz you know, behind the scenes. And it was very analog. It was very old school. This was pre-internet. You know, I mean, we were really working the phones, basically, you know, uh, calling uh, journalists, making pitches, trying to get our movies included. And all of this was to serve the idea that the movie might go to Sundance, have a big premiere, be wonderfully accepted, and then acquired. You know, that was the ultimate goal. So most of these movies were going to the festival, mainly as a market, in hopes of getting picked up by these new companies, these brand new companies like New Line, Gramercy, um, you know, obviously uh, Miramax was the biggest one. But all of these companies just, you know, were created overnight to pick up these movies and they were looking at the success of these other films that we talked about and saying, we want, we want that, you know, we want to pick up a small film and then have it go to the Oscars. So when I went there, I was exposed to all of this and I was absolutely fascinated with, you know, the actual event. I, I'd never seen so many people come together to celebrate the things that I felt passionate about. Right. And, um, you know, and I had these wonderful experiences, you know, um, meeting people there. And, you know, for a kid from Holland, Michigan, who literally worshipped these movies at the Blockbuster, to end up a few years later in Utah at the film festival, even if I wasn't going to films and I was working, it was hard work. It was life changing. And I made this mental note when I left that first year, I said, if there is ever a chance to work for this organization or to be a part of this, that is where I want to be. And I just put that in the back of my, my head. And a couple years later, after I had been out of publicity, I'd been working as a writer in, in primarily television, and I had had some success. I was feeling pretty good, like, wow, I might be able to build this little career out of writing. And a friend of mine sent me a link to a job posting, and it was this job working for the director of the film festival. And at that point, I had not been an assistant for many years. You know, uh, I thought, wow, this would be a huge step backward, you know, to to go back to assisting somebody, getting their lunch, answering their phone calls, mm -hmm. um, you know, all of the things that go with being a personal assistant, which I've been a personal assistant many times. And I can tell you it is, you know, it is hard work. I thought, well, nothing bad could come of applying you know, what's the worst that could happen? I could just, you know, say no. If I got, if I was lucky enough to get the job, then I just, and I don't want it, then I'll say no. But it was that passion of that first Sundance and remembering how excited I was that made me just say, okay, I'm going to apply for this, for this job, even though it's a big step back. You know, if, if you were my career counselor, you would have said, oh my God, you're, you're, 
this is a disaster. Like, you know, I had an agent at a very, you know, credible agency, creative artist agency, which at the time was the, the big one. Um, I had made more money that year than I'd ever made in my life because I was lucky enough to sell a few scripts and I had a few writing assignments. Um, I was a part of the writing community. You know, I felt that I had peers and colleagues and producers and people that I was working with. Um, but there was this desire to do this this thing that was about supporting artists and being being like the invisible right hand that helped things get discovered. That was like really exciting to me. So as fate would have it, they gave me this job. And um, so I took it and it changed my life. You know, I was there for almost 15 years and, um, and I saw the world because of, I literally saw the world because of Sundance Institute and had the most exciting experiences of my entire career without a doubt. Yeah. So you took that chance and, yeah. What was a step back was actually a springboard to quite quite the life. Yeah, and that one little <clears throat> excuse me, that one little voice in my head that said nothing bad could come of this, you know. I think I was almost 30. I was almost 30. I was 29 I think when I accepted this job and then I was 30 when I started it. And that kept me going and one of the things that I found frustrating about being in my late 20s in LA was there was this tendency after a few years of being in LA and after competing with, with your peers, you know, for opportunities, sometimes you would get that dark feeling like, Oh, you know, I wish so-and-so hadn't gotten that job. I just don't think they're talented, you know, mm-hmm. or I'm more talented, you know, your inner voice saying like, you know, why did they get it? And so you start getting lost in the, the idea that somehow the world's out to get you. And so I went through that, and by the time I said yes to the Sundance job, I had come to this conclusion that my success did not depend on anyone else's failure, and my career path could be whatever I chose it to be, even if other people thought, wow, that's really weird. This guy, he's going back to a desk job. You know, um, how, you know, wow, too bad for him. You know, and I know people said that. I know, you know, I'm sure people were looking at me and saying, oh my God, why are you doing this? But at that point, I felt more confident about what I wanted to do, and I felt that I understood it better. And so when I took that chance, it was, it was something that was fueled by the idea that nothing bad could come of this, and nothing bad ever came of it. Nothing. You know, every single thing that came of it was, was positive. And it wasn't positive in a career sense. Like, it wasn't about making more money or having a bigger title or getting bigger experiences. It was about, as a person, how how happy I was, you know, doing what I was doing and how much kinship I felt with every single person that I was doing it with. And it's probably a type of experience that you get once if you're lucky in your life. And, um, you know, certainly don't expect it to ever happen again in that way, you know, where something so unexpected would lead to so many different things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was kind of a, it was a roll of the dice, um, that ended up being, wonderful in so many ways. So I always tell people, you know, when they, you know, over the years, people have asked me to speak to young people and they always have the same question, you know, how did you get to where you were or how did, how did you create your career? How did you get here? You know, as if my career is like something to work toward, but if you've ever worked in the industry and then you talk to a younger person, they want to know, they want to know how'd you get there. And I always tell people, I just never said no, you know, I, I didn't say no to opportunities, even when they didn't, appear to make a ton of sense. And that's probably the best advice that I would give somebody is be open to any possibility, especially in a career 
like the entertainment industry where it's never one job. You know, you're going to do a hundred different jobs and each one of those is going to lead you to a better understanding of either what you want to accomplish or how to accomplish it, or you're going to meet somebody that you end up working with years later. And so it's, it's a whole dynamic matrix like any industry is, but, but Hollywood especially, or the entertainment industry especially is unpredictable, you know, constant set of opportunities. Um, and so just being open to those opportunities, I think led me to bigger and better things. But if I had focused on what does this look like to the outside world, you know, um, am I going to be embarrassed if I go back to my high school reunion that now I'm an assistant again, if I had made decisions based on those fears, nothing would have happened, right. nothing great. Yeah. Know? And that's a dangerous place to be is when you start comparing yourself and not only that, but then letting that dictate, you know, what you're going to do next is not a good spot to be for sure. No. And, and that probably, I mean, I think that goes for any career path or anything that you want to achieve in your life. But mm -hmm. yeah, in particular, it's because it's so easy to, I think I read somewhere that something like 2000 people a day move to Los Angeles from other parts of the country, or at least that was the case a few years ago. And so if you think about all those people that are pouring in and, and, you know, for every opportunity in the entertainment industry, there are probably a thousand or 2000 people that are, that are going for just that one opportunity. It can be very easy to feel defeated. You know, you could, you could really get set back. Um, but you are going to have to develop your own sense, your own compass of what am I doing this for? Um, what, what, what kind of work do I want to be a part of? and what kind of work don't I want to be a part of? Mm -hmm. And, and then you just, you know, it's a lot of luck, but it's also, I think having the self awareness to say, Hey, this is what I'm up to. You know, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of it. I'm going to keep, keep being open to these opportunities and try. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, not one person I've ever met has said, Oh, that, that happened exactly the way I planned it. You know, my friend Jack ending up on 30 rock, he auditioned. He was in Chicago doing Second City. Um, he had actually been told, this is a true story, you know, he had been told by the leadership at my university that he was not qualified to be an actor. They told wow. him point blank, you're not talented enough. You should be in the box office program. That's what they told him. Okay. And he said, you know what? I, I am talented enough and I'm interested and this is what I'm doing. So he moved to Chicago joined Second City. He was really successful, made a ton of friends there. And then slowly but surely, guess what? SNL starts calling. Would you want to audition? So he auditioned, I think, six or seven times for Saturday Night Live and never got it and was always close and just kept at it. And then one day, Lauren Michaels calls and says, hey, we've got this TV show. And I thought of you, you know, wow. how would he have ever known that by continuing to be you know, in this business and doing these things and being rejected all these times that underneath it all would be this life changing experience. So, you know, I think he would agree with me about this, that, you know, it, there's no way that he could have reverse engineered what happened to him. But he's, he stuck with what he was passionate about, which was performance, comedy, you know, being on stage, essentially. Yeah. And it led to this like mind blowing experience, you know, so. Yeah, that's such a cool story. And yeah, I think the lesson, a lot of that is keep showing up. That my yeah. One of my previous guests, Mae Steyer, who you know, she was in the Boardman Review with you too. Um, that was what she told me about some of her work is just keep showing up. And she 
has said that to me a couple times. It's so true. And it's such a good reminder, even for me too, as I'm, you know, doing this podcast, it's like, well, I just got to keep trying new things, showing up, saying yes to people. And then you're going to see it come to fruition down the line, but never, I don't think, are you going to be able to really predict what it's going to look like? Like you said, you can't really reverse engineer it. No, He had probably no idea or he had no predictor to, to show what was this going to look like. He just had to, you know, put his head down and keep, keep showing up and something came of it. Yeah. And also I think the one thing that he and I shared about some of those experiences was I think he would tell you how devastated he was too. You know, I mean, like I'm sure after auditioning multiple times for like a dream job, you know, and not getting it or coming close, it almost goes full circle to what happened to me with NYU, you know, NYU rejecting me probably was the best thing that ever happened in my life. But at the time I was devastated. I mean, I was just absolutely, Mm -hmm. I thought my, my life was over. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're so dramatic when you're younger anyway, but that was like, Oh God, it's, it's done. Right. You know, Well, well, there's a question then out of that is despite those devastating moments of being told no or rejected, how do you, pick yourself back up from some of those things. Cause those are big deal. I mean, you had these big dreams and then this was the step that was supposed to come next and it kind of was taken away or wasn't offered. How did you move on from there? Cause not everybody can. Whew, that's a big one. Yeah. That's a big, big question. Um, probably for everyone, it's going to be incredibly specific, but I'll, I'll just say this about me. For me, it's about not trying because I can't say not having because I'm human, but I try desperately not to have a chip on my shoulder. Hmm. And that's new. That's, that's, you know, middle age experience versus, you know, a young man's optimism. Yeah. But, Is it tiring to have a chip on your shoulder? Oh, it's, it's, it's the one thing that keeps you back. I mean, it's the absolute one thing that, that will destroy you is, you know, you take rejection or failure and you let it define you. And then you carry that forward and you're never able to recover, you know, because you're always, there's this shadow of injustice, I guess, you know, that you see, that you see the world as having rejected you. And then you assign your own self-worth based on this rejection. And then you can never pick, pick yourself back up, you know, um, my, one of my, you know, dear heroes, mentors is Robert Redford. Not surprisingly, that was a huge part of why, you know, even as an actor, you know, as a young person, I thought it didn't get better than Bobby Duvall, Robert Redford, De Niro, Pacino, Mm -hmm. all my white men, actor heroes. But, um, you know, Bob Redford says very famously that uh, when you have success in your life, that is precisely the moment to try something totally new and to and to not look back you know that that only when you have success is when you should go and and try and fail basically mm-hmm. and you know that sounds kind of wishy-washy but i've actually seen that work and in my life i've had experiences like that too i think you know going forward with that sundance job was a prime example of of taking a risk right at a time when i thought i was successful too um and that paid off for me but if i had carried any kind of chip in my life on my shoulder for too long because I'm human. I carry them. Everybody's got it. But there does come that moment where you just wake up and you say, okay, that was, that was yesterday. You know, that happened. Um, 
now what am I going to do about it? Or now what am I going to do next? Mm -hmm. You know, um, I also think if you're motivated only to prove people wrong, it's a pretty bad motivator. Right. But if you're motivated by something that really excites you, um, you know, then, then you can do great things, I think, or, or great things, meaning make yourself happy. Right. You know, that's the greatest thing that you can do is make yourself feel fulfilled as a human being and happy with what you're doing. And, um, proud of what you're doing. And I've had a great, I've had a great many times in my life when I've been able to experience that feeling. And I would say that's, that's kind of the nirvana, mm -hmm. you know, just being happy with what you're doing. Um, but I wouldn't get there if I had carried a chip, especially right. most recently in my mm -hmm. life. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's, that's part of my philosophy, I guess, if I had one. Um, and also, you know, when you, when you don't know what to do, just diving into something is a great way to pick yourself out, you know? And so I've always tried to do projects, you know, whatever, whatever that meant. Um, if I'm, if I'm not sure what to do, I'll just try and get busy. Mm -hmm. and, and somehow that leads to something, um, you know, yeah, I mean, that's truthfully the only thing that I would pass on as an elder person. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, let's take a quick break here. All right. We are back and we are hydrated. Um, so Joe, tell me a little bit about maybe where things are at in, uh, the industry now, as opposed to when you started, give people a little insight that might not know what it's like. Yeah, I don't know that I would be the most qualified person to to give you some insight there. That's but all right. um, like any industry, you know, there've been some seismic changes since since I was involved. You know, I can it's it's weird, you know, to look back and realize that I have had a career in an industry that has changed so much over the years. And when I look back, it's strange that so many big things happened while I was a part of it. Um but when I started, you know, there was a tradition to how things were done, just like many other industries that were since disrupted by technology, in particular in the internet, obviously. And so I think when I got into the independent film business, most of what I studied in the first couple of years was the system, you know, sort of how things were done, why they were done that way, um, who the players were just the lay of the land, you know, like why, why are things done this way? And what I found was a great community of people that cared a great, great deal about connecting new films to audiences, you know, like really exciting audiences with new, new works and new talent and new performers and all of those things. But the system was kind of broken. You know, there were some big, big gatekeepers. You could not release a movie you know, back in the day for, for less than a very sizable investment. Um, we're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, not, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, even just getting a print of a 35 millimeter film and shipping that print, you know, all over the country or striking what they used to call striking prints, um, you know, hundreds of copies that would go out to theater simultaneously and that whole antiquated system. You know, we, you experience it every single time you go to the movies. Now, the whole thing is different. When you go to the AMC Cherry Blossom here, most of you pass right by that little glass room with all the blinking lights and you see, you know, that is the machine that is delivering all the content to you. And those movies were emailed for all intents and purposes, sometimes delivered on a secure drive, but, you know, mostly, you know, done almost entirely electronically now. And so the speed and the cost has gone way, way down. 
But then the other thing that we've all experienced is the glut of content. You know, I mean, anyone at any point now could watch almost any movie, you know, ever made. And it creates that what they call that paradox of choice, which I feel and I think a lot of people feel every time that I open my Netflix, I spend 20 to 30 minutes trying to decide what is it that I'm going to watch. And unless I'm, you know, super focused and I want to go in and watch something very specifically, I'm having that trouble of deciding. Um, same thing with Amazon, same thing with Hulu, same thing with, with going to the movie theater. Yeah. Um, I think there are 14 screens, 12 or 14 screens at the AMC, you know? Um, so that has changed, I think, the way that people consume movies. You know, in the, in the earliest days when I was a part of it, if you went to the movie theater on a weekend, that was a big commitment. And so you would never walk out of a movie, even if it was a bad movie, that you didn't like, you would never walk out of it because you had paid the parking and the popcorn and the ticket price. And you would, you would sit through to the bitter end. Now, I think when you have this a la carte, you know, SVOD culture where we can all get anything, the minute that you're not satisfied with something, you just turn it off. That's what I was going to say. That's how it is. Like even with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, the huge array of choices is the one thing that makes it difficult to pick one. Mm -hmm. But also I find myself watching the first 15 minutes of a Netflix series or something. And if it doesn't grab you, pull me in, then I'm like, Oh, well I can always go to something else. Of course. And before you used to, you know, you would kind of suffer through some of those first episodes until things settled (laughs) in. And then you're like, this is a good show. Or sometimes you would watch the whole season and be like, it still isn't a good show. Yeah. But you don't have to do that anymore. It's really weird. No, it's super true. And and of all the things that happened to me while I was working, you know, in the film and television industry, the, the revolutions that I saw really quickly were, you know, digital camera technology. So this was the transition between tape and, and tapeless. So the cameras got smaller, you know, the way that people shot movies changed, you know, Blair Witch Project and some of those um, early, you know, really, really gritty, independent, you know, digital films, they changed everything. Now look at paranormal activity, you know, one of the most, you know, successful movies of, of all time also shot in that style. So that was the first revolution I saw. Then the second was the non what they call nonlinear editing, right? So your iMovie and what year it was where there was like that switch to digital? Well, that was happening almost in parallel with when I went to LA. Okay. So I would say like by the time I arrived in LA in 1996, the so G, the GL1 and the XL2 and some of those cameras were on mini DV tape, but they okay. were but there were other cameras that were quickly moving to tapeless and mm-hmm. that you know when you have tape it's it creates a whole workflow where you have to process the tape, you have to, you know, ingest and export and all of the different functions. And then tapeless just created a way that, for example, if you're making a documentary, you never know what that story is going to be. And back in the day, people would have to be a lot more selective about what they filmed because every single second you filmed was was a cost to right. you. And once that cost became almost negligible, it became almost a zero cost, then things really started to change and people were able to make what, you know, binge documentaries, mm-hmm. you know, like most documentaries have three to 400 hours of footage, you know, for a two hour film. I'm thinking of planet earth or something like that. Yeah, where... exactly. Exactly. And, and now you can actually release nine episodes of something like that, you know, and, and it's, it's a marginal cost to do the more long form, you know, version. And this editing was a big, big, um, you know, transition or a, a 
a major milestone was, you know, once editing technology became something that was software based instead of hardware based, you know, with the old Avids or the flatbeds or the way that people used to edit content, which was much more time consuming. Uh, once people could edit in their home, then anybody was capable of making something. And, you know, now you see that in all kinds of different ways, but that influence was just bubbling when I first got there. Mm -hmm. So what I saw, and part of the reason actually why I I was able to do some of the things that I was able to do as a writer was no one knew what was going on. No one had any idea. This, this contract that I got with Warner brothers, um, was for internet content back before they even called it content. You know, it was called a webisode or something at that time. But I got paid to develop these these things um, and was lucky enough to get these little projects because I was probably younger than the average person that was coming in. So they stupidly thought maybe I understood the internet better than someone else. Um, but they also were just throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what would stick. You know, it was, they didn't know, they had no idea. And people thought that we would pay for content online and they were wrong in the beginning. And then all these, these, uh, companies that had been built to try and take advantage of that, they all went away. And then it was only a decade later when somebody like Netflix moved from their DVD, you know, system to an online system that suddenly the technology had caught up with the desire to stream movies and it was viable and then the cost came down. And so all of that, you know, happened while I was at Sundance. And so being at the heart of this independent industry where people are clawing and fighting and wanting to get their work out into the world and then seeing tools that suddenly overnight allowed them to do that, it was instant that artists could have a direct relationship with audiences. And that was the biggest revolution, I think, of the time that I've been a part of the industry is what that changed. And not all artists want to have that direct relationship with their audience, but the ones that do and the ones that have become great at it, you see that they've taken all the control, all the creative control and all the business control away from these machines that used to be the gatekeepers. And now they are able to do almost anything that they want. that is the most seismic thing that happened, you know, and crowdfunding was a part of that. And that happened while I was at Sundance. And it was something that I was very interested in when I was there. And we built a program to try and harness that because we, we saw it as an opportunity for our artists to create things that they couldn't create otherwise. Um, so lots of little things like that happened, you know, and I wish I always am, I'm waiting for that book that someone will write, you know, someday that will outline, sort of all these changes and put it in perspective. And maybe that's what they teach now in in college. You know, I have no Mm. idea. But um, there were a number of these things that everyone around you, you would look, you would look at people and we all were in the same boat of feeling that something was changing. But it was changing so quickly that the only way to become an expert with it was to ride the waves. You know, you could not, there was not a single person that could predict where things were going. So you just had to try and jump in the, the deep end, be a part of it. And then you got some intelligence about what it all meant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was, it's, I'm sure that if you were interviewing somebody from like the turn of the century about the movie industry, they would also have the same like, oh, you, you have no idea how things changed. You right. Know? But I feel like I lived through a particularly interesting dynamic part of the history of, you know, the film industry in particular. So Yeah. Yeah. And I even think through the history of like mankind, because just these technological changes are happening so rapidly and now we're able to interact with each other in such strange ways. You have all the stuff at your fingertips. You can talk to people 
but not really know people, you know, yeah. with the face-to-face stuff. And yeah, just overall. And it's not stuff. better or worse, you know, that's the yeah. thing. It's not, it's not as if we're living in this utopia where everything now is perfect and everything back then was awful. Um, the one thing that's changed is, you know, people, there are so many more people that are able to make a career and a living out of creating things in all forms, right? Not just moving images, but all types of expression and creativity are rewarded by the idea of a global audience and a direct relationship with fans, you know? So if the the podcast revolution is a perfect example of that. I mean, you know, how, how many of these obscure discussions around things that people are very passionate about exist only because the technology allowed you to reach people that shared that passion, right? You know, I mean, it's just the basic function of, the internet and internet delivery systems. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say on that on that note, it is an, a more exciting time, or it's a more interesting time. Um, but it also creates this paradox of choice, which people get they they go crazy trying to decide like what to watch, what to listen to, what to read, um, because we have so much to yeah. consume. So yeah, there's a yeah. lot being pushed at us all at once and it's hard to sort through everything sometimes yeah i think overwhelming don't you think that mainly people depend on the recommendations of their closest friends or family yeah so that's the filter you know you pay like if you recommended something i would pay attention to it because we've met and we share some tastes and so i'd be interested in what you were interested in right but um it's also the the death of the critic a little bit you know um I always am surprised at how many movie posters and advertisements still carry those kind of ridiculous, you know, four star, one line, you know, pull pull quotes from the review. Yeah. And I always think that it would be more effective if they just did, you know, tweets, like tweets from people mm-hmm. talking about the movie would be more compelling yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah. Than, you know, whatever. And it's no offense to critics. I think film mm-hmm. criticism is a pretty decent, you know, field, but yeah. So here's a question for you because it, it, you're exactly right where the uh, opinion of our peers, I think, matters more than the critics sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I've had times where I still go on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever and check the, the ratings before I'll go see a movie. And I think sometimes I miss out on what my peer thought was a good movie because I listen to the critic or vice versa. Sometimes I feel too shallow. If, if my peer said this movie was great, I went in, I loved it, and then I read a review uh, from a professional and they're like, this movie was terrible. Yeah. Like, how should I feel about that? Is it, I mean, just enjoy what I enjoy or where's that oh, disconnect? Yeah. 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 You don't need anybody's permission right. to like what you like. Um, the interesting part of that is, you know, we, we started talking about this consumption culture with Netflix and, and how, if you don't like something, you just move on to the next thing. So that has finally become a part of my film going experience too, because I do the AMC Stubbs club. So same idea, almost all you can eat. I think you can see three movies a week. Um, You know, it's $20 a month, which is ridiculous compared to what you would pay for an individual ticket. But my girlfriend and I sometimes go to bad movies or movies that we would never go to if we were paying full price, Mm -hmm. you know, just out of a a morbid curiosity of like, you know, how bad can it be? Right. (laughs) Or I'm, I'm not sure that I would even care for this movie, but it's not going to cost us anything, so to speak. So we'll we'll go see it. Um, It's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure that I feel like it's a better world that way, but it's certainly, there's less risk in consuming things, you know, like we're not making huge commitments 
in order to experiment or try things, you know, um, and, and I like that. I do like that. And at the end of the day, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, can we take a couple minutes and you just kind of share, um, maybe like what Robert Redford is like, or at what level did you know him? Is there anything interesting you can share about him and your interactions? Sure. I mean, you know, I, it is an absolute admitted humble brag to say that I got to work with, do it, yeah. you know, Mr. Redford. Um, I never worked, you know, directly for him, but he was so involved at Sundance and over the years at Sundance, you know, my role changed quite a bit that by the end of my career there, I was lucky enough to be involved occasionally with reporting to our board of trustees. And, you know, um, Bob was a part of that. He was always in the room. He and I had a very storied, exciting argument one time about crowdfunding that um, ended with him. I hope he's all right with me saying this, but he, he stormed out of the room because he was just, he just didn't understand it. And he thought that it was, he thought that it was a commercial exchange. When I tried to explain it to him, he's like, well, that's just like a coffee mug for a movie. And I don't believe in that. And he, he had a really good point. You know, I mean, I really took to heart his, his thoughts on that, but, um, that was probably the scariest moment of my career there. Cause I felt like he was personally disappointed yeah. in me. Um, when I was, in the middle of my career at Sundance, they gave me the keys to Sundance.org and everything that the organization did online, primarily because they also did not know what was what to do with it. I had this limited experience with some Warner Brothers online content, so they thought, well, you know, we can't do worse than giving it to this guy. Um, little did they know, but we, <laughs> you know, so I built up this whole online film festival and, um, you know, the, the, t the time that I demoed it for Bob, you know, was scary and I was sweating through, you know, my shirt. It was like the first time that I was presenting some work that we had done and I wanted him to be proud of it. And, um, so we were, you know, I was demonstrating it and, and he was, he was into it. He really was curious about it. Um, and this was the first time that we had any, any interaction. And he said, well, let me stop you right there, John. And I was like, oh God, I was like, now what do I do? I, I'm like, do I correct him? You know? Yeah. And I was like, hell no, you're going to be John for the next couple years. If that's what it takes, like, you know, don't just let him talk. Right. <laughs> and, um, so eventually he did, he did learn my name. I didn't have to correct him. And, you know, you don't ever forget any single time that you meet Robert Redford. You know mm -hmm. I mean? At least if you're somebody like me. And over the years, what was really fun about working with Bob, he has a wicked sense of humor. I mean, just an enormously funny, sardonic way of breaking the ice. And um, and the commitment that I saw, you know, one of the things that, that were very different personally were extremely different, um, but he is so without sentiment. You know, he the minute something is done or achieved, he is immediately looking at whatever is coming next. Oh. I mean, almost, almost dogmatically and passionately saying like, I never look back. We always look forward. And I'm a very sentimental person. I, I spend an enormous amount of time looking back and I get real emotional about certain things in the past. And so, but watching him work that way and inspire other people was really a huge thrill. And so over the years, you know, I got a chance to interview him many times. We had a few one-on-one -on -one meetings um, and he was very interested in what we were trying to do with technology. I think because of this idea of the new 
always being more important than the old. Mm -hmm. And so even though he'll tell you, I, you know, he doesn't email or, or, you know, really, he doesn't use social media, even though he would have a huge following if he did. Um, he uses other ways of communicating, but, um, he was always fascinated with how not the technology for technology's sake, but how technology was helping artists and how it was changing the way that they were presenting their work and changing the way that they could create an audience. That was always very, very interesting to him. He also was, you know, a founder, you know, it was one of the, the, and he was a founder in the strongest sense of the word, you know, somebody that had created and led an organization, but then also I think had a very strong sense of his own limitations with how the organization would have to evolve. You know, he's the first person to say all the time when you ask him about the Sundance Institute and the creation of the film festival, that he never expected it to last more than a few years, you know, and his only hope was that if it continued after a few years, that it would stick to some ideals. And he was terrified that we would lose our way, I think, you know, not not we specifically, but just the organization would lose its way. And every year he would say, you know, we're still doing new things and we're still committed to the same the same principles that we always were. You know, we're trying to create opportunities for new voices in the industry. And many people think that means the most obvious new voice, like a new director or a new writer. It's everybody. Sundance has done more to create a behind the scenes culture for more inclusivity of artists to be able to work on projects, you know, cinematographers, composers, screenwriters, producers, all of the hidden parts of movie making than any other organization I can possibly think of. You know, they've, they've, they've almost changed the entire look and feel of the industry. And of course, people know Oscar So White and other uh, kind of criticisms of where we are now. But I would say if you look at the influence of Redford and the Institute on changing that, I would argue that almost no one has had a bigger institutional you know, um, effect than Sundance Institute. But that was something that I saw every single day, a diehard commitment from the staff to the principles that guided that and a real fierce experimentation with how to achieve that. You know, that's the other thing at Sundance. If something's not working, it gets thrown away, Mm -hmm. even if there's been a huge commitment to it. You know, there's a constant reassessment and a, and a re- analysis of of what why are we doing what we're doing and is it working and so compromise on quality or the mission or no anything no and you know the the only the, the the only thing that i would say about about the organization that is probably going to be maybe something that i will believe for the rest of my life is that you know, he's a, he's a patron of the arts, obviously. He's one of the best artists of our time. I mean, in many forms, you know, I, I don't know if you saw Old Man and the Gun, but it's fantastic. And that was going to be one of my questions at the end is give me some homework <laughs> on movies I need to see. Well, that's a, you know, that, and he said now this past year, he said that was going to be his last performance okay. um, on screen. And, um, but the, as a founder and as a guiding light, what was so interesting about him to me and what is so interesting is that he has never, in my opinion, tried to grab that spotlight. He's always reluctant and and somewhat embarrassed to be the front person for, for all of these things. You know, he really just wants the organization to succeed 
without him. And that's an enormously selfless point of view for a founder. You know, he could have a real micromanagement hand and try and get involved in lots of things, but he really believes in his staff. He believes in his board. He believes in the, in the state of Utah, Park City, all the, the people in the, and the place that make it work. And he allows it to develop. You know, he doesn't interfere, I don't think, with that development. And and if you go to the film festival today, which is happening actually in a week, um, you will see something that is so different from the the first iteration of it in 1984. And it's because he allowed, he had the, the he had the confidence to let it develop, I think. And he always wanted it to succeed, but he also was, it was not a vanity project. You know, this is not something that he did to create, you know, more admiration for himself. It was really a selfless, you know, dream to create a place where artists could explore things without the pressure to succeed, but with the express, with the express freedom to fail. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like he has the vision of somebody who is wanting it to, to last long-term, even when he's not playing a direct role in it. Yeah, and anymore. I think more than more than ever, you may see him take a lesser role. You know, um, you know, he's he's got a huge family. He's got other things that he cares about: the environment, politics, um, his own artistic inspirations. You know, and so it's interesting. I kind of you know I miss Sundance all the time because of Bob. Um, he was a one of a kind. He is a one of a kind person. You know, and um, and anyone you know that that was a part of this organization or is a part of the organization will tell you that, you know, it's hard not to get inspired by, by him. Um, I would say you would have to be a pretty cold hearted person. <laughs> yeah. So listen, when we were talking earlier, I was thinking about that, that um, philosophy that he mentioned. And while we were getting our beverages here, I found the quote, which was on my refrigerator. So okay. this would be a nice way to end on Bob. This is a quote from him. When you have the good fortune to have success in your life, I've always thought that is precisely the time that you should reinvent yourself. You should go right back to zero as though nothing happened and start again. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's really cool because when we took our break um, to grab some more drinks, we had talked about, you know, what is the lesson that we want to have with this episode? And I never know because, you know, like I was explaining to Joe, as I interview people that I don't really know on a deep personal level, but I think we'll become friends after this Yeah, is, you know, are, are they going to be able to put some type of lesson or am I going to be able to squeeze something out of people? And I said that I continue to learn because at no point with any of my guests, have I had to force a lesson out of somebody It always comes organically. They always have something important that the listeners can learn from. And so I think what, for me, what I'm taking away is a lot of that chip on the shoulder and mm -hmm. how if you're burning hot from that chip, you can kind of burn yourself out almost. You're burning too hot from that. And then also, you know, what you'd shared about that quote here too is exactly right. Just for, I think, long-term success and not just to be a, a blip on the radar real mm -hmm. quick is you have to implement those ideas into that. Yeah, he, well, yes, just, you know, pure yes. All I, right. I totally agree with that. And the funny thing about getting older, among others, things <laughs> is that you start to have a lot of confidence in failing you know you don't see failure sorry that's my coffee pot i think oh that's but okay. um you don't see it as a threat um or at least i don't but it's taken me an entire lifetime to get to that point and i've had 
as many brutal failures as I've had incredible successes. And I look back at them now with equal wonder and equal respect. And I think honestly, it's a total cliche. And when you hear it when you're younger, you never really believe it. But trust me, if you live through it, I think it, it holds true that the experiences that you have that don't go the way that you expected are often the ones that, that define you much more accurately as a person than success. Yeah. Success tends to wash over us all in the same way, but failure, challenges, setbacks, they really, really define who we are as people. And, um, and I'm more proud of the responses that I've had to those types of experiences than I ever have been of the great opportunities that I got. You know, yeah. I've always felt like those were just dumb luck. Mm -hmm. um, but I've always respected myself for being able to maybe look at things that didn't go my way and say, okay, now what, you know, now what do I do about this and how do I feel about it? And how is it going to become a part of my, my, you know, DNA moving forward? Yeah. So. Man, I had done this in episode 32 with Karen, where I said, I think I need to get like a cowbell and ring it when, <laughs> when there's just something that really resonates with like the whole mission of the podcast. And you're exactly right. Like I had just done an episode on how I'm approaching 2019. Okay. And a lot of how I tend to approach new things or new years or try to, if I'm doing things correctly, mm -hmm. is to use the momentum from the positive things that I've done. So can those serve as a springboard, but also reflecting back on the mistakes slash failures. And instead of just getting down about the fact that that was a mistake or that was a failure, let it strengthen you and this and, and become a part of the armor that you can take into the next, you know, set of failures that you're sure to, to come up against. And yeah, that's like yeah. exactly what you're saying. Well, we all feel so anxious about things that we can't predict, you know, anything in our lives that's out of our control can be a source of great tension and, you know, stress. I think the more experiences you have where things don't go your way and you realize the world didn't end, you wake up the next morning, the sun comes up, your friends are still your friends. They still love you and support you, your family always. And those things become so much more important, you know, over time, at least, you know, for me, they've become enormously important, most important. And then when you look back at those little setbacks, you say, wow, that wasn't, you know, that really was not catastrophic. You know, that wasn't, it, it, and it looked that way when I was facing it, you know? Um, but in retrospect, I think that probably led me somewhere unexpected and more wonderful than I could have ever brought myself. You know, um, life is in control, you know, it's just in control of all of us. And it's very difficult sometimes to really embrace the chaos of, you know, what, what we do every day, which is get up and live and love and, you know, try yeah. and do the things that matter. Um, try and make the world a better place. I think most of us, if not all of us really do believe that no matter what our politics, no matter what our, our personal backgrounds, I think everybody is really, for the most part, hoping to succeed in life by, by, you know, giving back and having a, a solid, um, system that they believe in, you know, and for me, that failure is now a big part of it. You know, mm -hmm. um, I don't like to fail. I don't want to fail, but I'm very unafraid of things not going the way that I anticipated. Um, 
you know, it'll be interesting to see, like, you know, I hope to live a great long life. And if I get to that point, I'll wonder how much more profoundly I might believe this, you know, Mm -hmm. like how much more profoundly will I feel in 20 or 30 years after a couple more setbacks that take me in a totally different direction um, than I would feel about anything that was successful. Right. You know? Yep. Exactly. Yeah. When I look back at the tapestry of you know, working in the business, the, the most interesting times and the most interesting stories that I would ever have would be about the things that went wrong. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. the and the most boring stories are about the things that went right. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I've said that in previous podcasts too. I'd heard it from somebody where he had mentioned um, the different levels of fun that we have. And so mm-hmm. a low level of fun is going on a roller coaster. You're having fun while you're on the roller coaster. You're not going to tell that story in 10 years. Mm-hmm. The highest levels of fun are when you were with a buddy, you were stuck in a rainstorm on the side of the road, trying to change a flat tire, whatever it is. That's when you have the most fun because for years and years, you're going to tell that story about the unfortunate, <laughs> you know, situation that you were in. And right. that's, I think what failure provides a lot of time is those opportunities. Yeah. So it's, uh, I'll be interested. I'd like to know. So this would be interesting. So if this, if this gets out and people, you know, kind of latch on to this theme, what would be cool is if people would leave some some comments or some stories of their own and just see yeah. if this resonates. You know, I'd like to know if people really believe this or if it's just lip service you yeah. know, about failure. So if you're listening and you had a failure or you had something, you know, just tell us, like, say, say, yeah, I totally believe that or nope, you guys are totally off the mark. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> awesome. I like I like the call to action. I think that's going to get people invested into really. Uh, think about, you know, some of the things that we've said and how it relates to them. Um, as we kind of bring this back full circle, can you just tell people, you know, where you're at now, what you're up to? Sure. Yeah. Bouncing back from some setbacks, uh, this past year, which are still resonating in my mind. So I, I moved here to Michigan to take a job and then that job was not what I expected. And, and I ended up deciding to make a change and, um, wasn't sure what to do next. And Northern Michigan is this incredibly inspiring place. And I didn't want to leave here. Um, I actually really wanted to be a part of this community. And so most recently, about two months ago, um, I got this incredible opportunity to uh, join the Michigan Legacy Art Park, which is this nonprofit organization in Thompsonville, um, which is located within the, the grounds of the Crystal Mountain Resort. And it's a 30-acre public sculpture experience where you hike through the woods and there are over 40 uh, permanent installations, large format sculptures of every different taste and style, and then some temporary installations. And the organization does a a great deal to try and give kids an experience, students an experience during the summer um, of a field trip to something like this that stimulates them in ways that other, other kinds of field trips probably can't. And what I'm most interested in is since I joined the organization and, and I'm the new executive director and I'm trying to get to know the history of the place and my staff, which is wonderful, and all the, the different things that they're creating and doing, um, it's clear to me that what's what's really fascinating is lots of people who experience this art park would never go to a museum mm. or they would never go to an art gallery but somehow this idea of taking a hike through the woods in northern Michigan and then every once in a while these incredibly weird and cool sculptures pop up. And they're not things that you stand and look at. The founder of the art park was a, an artist named David Barr. And 
I've been trying to, he's no longer here. He, he passed away a few years ago, but I'm trying to channel some of the original motivations and instincts. And this is art that is supposed to be experienced in any way that you want. You know, so these kids run up and, and see it from all angles and you're not supposed to like stand there and talk about it academically. You know, you're supposed to, this is an experience. You're like walking, you're outdoors. It's open 365 days a year. So you can see this artwork in all four seasons. It's incredibly generous, the idea of this, this art park. And it's not just art for art's sake. It's the whole idea that created it was to somehow try and celebrate Michigan's history by using sculpture and art as a method of telling that story. And so if you go to the art park, every sculpture has a kind of story behind it. And whether or not it's clear to you or not, that's a part of why it was put together this way. And so it's no surprise to anybody here that Traverse City is like one of the most, you know, artistically rich, culturally rich cities I've ever I've ever seen, including all the places that I've visited, yeah. you know. If you if you look at any given night what you could experience here in in the Traverse City area broadly, you know, all these surrounding communities, northern Michigan as a whole, um, it's pretty incredible, you know. It's like an embarrassment of riches of different types of experiences. And so I really wanted to be a part of the nonprofit philanthropy driven community that helps these things succeed. And so to have this opportunity was a huge, it is a huge thrill. And so if anybody wants to visit us, you know, uh, please come down yeah. and ex we do guided tours. We're doing snowshoe tours this month in January. I think we had even talked about maybe doing this conversation over a, a yeah. tour. I'm glad that we did it here where it was warm and right. we had yep. some beers. It was nice. Um, <laughs> But yeah, please, you know, if you haven't experienced it, I think it's it's a real hidden gem of Northern Michigan's, you know, embarrassment of riches of culture, uh, but it's unique and it's really cool. And and I'm looking forward to this spring and the summer, we'll have almost uh, 2,000 kids probably come through on field trips and guided tours. And it's a part of the job that I haven't even been able to see yet firsthand. So right. when, when that starts happening, I think I'll be very, very stimulated to see how this affects them. And the idea isn't to create a kid that goes on to be an artist, much like we started talking about with how things can influence you in different ways. The idea is just to give kids an experience. It's outdoors, they're moving. Uh, you know, I recently read a statistic that some kids spend less than 20 minutes outdoors every day, which is incredible to me. Yeah. I mean, I spent hours outdoors when I was a kid every single day. So. It's great to, to say, okay, no screen time. We're just going to run in the woods. We're going to look at these cool, weird things. We're going to talk about it. We're going to maybe make some art of our own, and then we'll go back home. How we influence those kids, it's totally, it's totally unknown. You know, 10 years from now, if somebody's at college, you know, trying to figure out what they want to do, you know, some thought about what they experience could pop back in their head, or maybe not. And if it doesn't happen, I'm equally satisfied if it does happen, you know, it's, yeah. it's not about, I think a lot of people see the arts maybe skeptically as organizations that are trying to create future cultural addicts. And that's really not the case. You know, it's, it's much more about trying to give kids just a tiny little different perspective. And the idea is they can do with it whatever they want. And I think that's what I'm most excited about seeing. So that's where I am. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, as we wrap this up, uh, you'd mentioned just how 
culturally diverse and how unique um, the city of Traverse City is and just the surrounding northern Michigan area. So I hope that you know after calling this home that you are playing a, a major role in, in the continuing you know aspect that northern Michigan um, provides to people. And so thank you for what you've done, your experience, and sharing this stuff on the episode. Um, I, I'm going to end with you know what I think some of the takeaways should be for people, and then you can end with your own little takeaway that you want to send people. I know you already had your call to action and then just plug, you know, if you want to plug your Instagram or, or your work uh, website or whatever it might be, um, go ahead. But I just want to remind people after this conversation that I had with Joe, um, that I guess, you know, embrace failure. So think about, um, what you can learn from some of those things. Try to say yes as often as you can, because you never really know what, um, might come of it down the line. And that is just, you know, something that, I'm definitely taking with me and then trying to not compare myself to others. Don't carry that chip on your shoulder. It can become uh, very heavy and it can actually prevent you from achieving some of that long-term success that I think we all want to have. And so Joel, thanks for sharing that stuff with me. If you have any other takeaways or want to plug some of your stuff, now's the time. No, no, thank you. This was really enjoyable. And, and um, I hope in some weird way that, you know, people will see people, people can take away from my lowly little, <laughs> uh, experience, you know, how, how exciting the journey of trying to do what you love is, you know, ultimately what a, what a gift it is to, you know, live here every single day and, and wake up and, and have the opportunity to, to serve, to be a part of the community and, um, yeah, just be present. That's the best, that's the best way to live life. Awesome. Do you have an Instagram that you want to share with people or? Oh, I got an Instagram, <laughs> but it's pretty boring. It's a lot of, you know, food picks and well that's what instagram is and... i think isn't it sure if you if anyone is so bored that they i follow want... them <laughs> that they want to follow me <laughs> i'm i'm on the twitter and uh the instagram as uh cinejo right. c-i-n-e-j-o-e an homage to my to my previous career perfect yeah all right well but you will to... be disappointed no i i've looked at some of his stuff and uh you're going to want to tune in and stay up to date with what he has going on. So um, once again, thanks everybody for listening. And if, like Joe said, he gave us a little call to action earlier in the episode. So feel free to reach out to uh, either him or I uh, with some of your experiences, some of the failures that you've had and maybe how that propelled you or how we're totally off base and failure isn't a good thing. Just let us know. Uh, Everybody have a good week. Bye-bye.